you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app and answer a few questions. With Angie, you can book instantly at an upfront price or request and compare quotes from multiple pros so you can find the best price for your project. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Now entering Nerdist.com. That's right. <laughs> no, how are we sounding? That's vibrating. Sorry. <laughs> do you uh, need to get Billy's mic a little closer? Is he okay? Billy actually was okay. He's good? Okay. Yeah. And uh, how do I say? <sighs> Jonah, we've gone over this. Like a girl. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast. I'm Chris Hardwick. Jonah Ray is finally here again. Hello. <laughs> we've missed you. I know. Even though it's only been probably a few weeks. It's, it's only been a couple one. weeks. It just feels like eons. It does. Matt Myra, thank you for being here. Our thank guest you. today is Mr. Billy West. Hello, boys. Billy West. I am. It, this is such a tremendous honor to have you on the show. Yeah? I, I became pals with your publicist, who, who happens to handle... A shitload of people that I love, like Fred Willard and Tom Kenny oh, and Tom the Kenny, yeah. Cinematic Titanic guys, and you. And uh, he's uh, he's slowly becoming a uh, a a host organism and that I am uh, latching onto because he has so many wonderful clients. He's he's a great guy. And Glenn uh, Schwartz. I never, when I was growing up, you know, especially when I took my first jobs, somebody said, you know, someday you're gonna have a publicist. I'm like, what? To shovel dirt into a U-Haul truck? This is a great job where you can say, yeah, my publicist just <laughs> This guy shovels dirt like no one else. You've oh, got to yeah. check him out. Well, yeah. the truth of the matter is most publicists don't, they, they just make a shitload of money and they don't really, nothing really happens. Like, you, you could, you'll pay them anywhere between three to $5,000 a month. Well, Glenn, as our Jewish friends say, is a mensch. He is a mensch. He's been he's been wonderful. <laughs> he has been wonderful. But yeah, he give you the shirt off his back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what he sounds like. That's exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's weird to talk to him. Well, I'm do- I was doing Al Lewis from the Monster. Grandpa Al. <laughs> yeah, Herman, you big dummy. Look what you did. You locked us in the bank for. <laughs> uh, that was my best friend, Gwen. Eddie. Eddie. Is that your, uh, uh-huh. your Fred Gwynn? It, well, it was, it was a bad Fred Gwynn. Yeah. No, he, would, he was fey. He was like kind of like, oh, hi there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because he was he was a Frankenstein creature. They act, they never this was I think I saw this in a behind the scenes of the monsters. They actually had the doctor had actually sewn a vagina on him, and that's why <laughs> that's why he was very fey, Herman Munster as, oh, as a yeah? creature. Yeah, yeah. Then why, well, you know, you then know why did he sound the same in Pet Cemetery? <laughs> he never got the vagina taken off. You don't want to go up there. He was method. 
Yes. I've grown used to it now. <laughs> no, he um, he played the part in the pilot uh, as sort of a sullen, beatnik-type character. Mm-hmm. Fred Gwynn. As, oh, really? As Herman Munster, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he was just like, he didn't care about anything. He was... He was just kind of sullen and, and... Well, he's dead. Didn't say much. Yeah, that's probably what he was thinking. Yeah. But then they said, it's not really playing. And so he switched everything around and came in like, like a, you know, like a Boston Brahmin. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> yeah. there's a spot on my card. <laughs> they should have just replaced him with Michael J. Fox. They, they, yeah. they could have. Yeah, but I mean, it was great because he was an exaggeration of the Boston blue-blooded types. You know, like, oh, it's hot in here today, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I was always so emotionally torn between Monsters and Adam's family. I was always so emotionally Monster, torn I between those two shows. Monsters is slapsticky. Is, I right? I liked the... Uh, the Munsters better just because of the dynamic with Al Lewis and everybody else. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. and that that sexy Marilyn, who they said was ugly. She's because... ugly, Harmon. How can she get a date? <laughs> better theme song too. Better theme song. The Munsters. Way better. Way theme song. cooler yeah. because it was written by a guy named Jack Marshall, who uh, who uh, played these weird, strange chords. I don't know if you guys know about music, but um, they were like. Oh, diminished fifths in there. That it was like two notes out of tune. Like, like, it was almost like like kind of weird horror surf rock. It's, That's right. Yeah, it was it great because a lot of surf bands yeah, the, love playing that song. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The bass line was very like surfy. Yeah, it was good. Adam's family was great because I loved the sound of harpsichord in anything when it was used for everything <laughs> except chamber music and all the crap that it was built for. I yeah. loved it in rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. I really feel like the harpsichord needs to make a strong comeback. I think we need to see more har- harpsichord in music. I think so, yeah. I don't think it's going to happen, though. Well, you know what it is? is <laughs> you can't it. find a real one, and if you do, you can try to play one session with it, and it'll be all out of tune. And They didn't build them for anything except, like, staying in a church for 150 years. In Austria. Yes, but they did I don't know, going off on harpsichords, they built a plexiglass one, you know, in the uh, 60s and I think the 70s. And they used it for a while and just went out of fashion. Nobody cared about that sound, but but it is pretty specific. What lasts in your memory after all these years? Did you ever work with any of those guys? Did you ever work with any? It really sounds funny through that. <laughs> you know, it was like I, I loved all that stuff. This is probably what the real reason why I'm here is because that peripheral crap made me crazy when I was a kid. Like these noises and sound effects and weird voices. Were you a big Charlie Callis fan? Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was walking down the street. <laughs> What was his story? I just remember. I mean, I remember him, but I, I don't remember what his like we, what his story was. He was he was like a spaz. Yeah. And and he looked like he took himself seriously, and and he looked a little like he would do a whole thing about Jacques Cousteau. Uh huh. And he would put on the cap and immediately look like Jacques Cousteau because he had like that Greek sort of international face. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling he was also his sister might have been Maria Kalas. Oh really? Yeah, I think so. 
That is an insane grouping, the I two know. of them. Yeah, one's a coloratura and the other one's a like, hey, 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 hold it. Stop it, you're embarrassing me. Yeah, here, hold this. Yeah, he says, I was in the Olympics. I was a dart. <laughs> but that's the junk that made me crazy when I was a kid, is the just punctuators that were noises. My heroes were like Jonathan Winters, and yeah. Sid Caesar was the guy that just like destroyed me molecularly when I was a little kid. I watched your show of shows in real time in the 50s, you know, when it, when it was on. And uh, this guy was like the first televised image I ever saw, Sid Caesar. And he had dialects, and he could make noises, and rocket ships, and screaming Nazis, and you know, I mean, he was just, he was great. And then people like Robin Williams came along later and sort of were a hybrid of like Sid Caesar and Jonathan Williams. I like uh, John, yeah, Jonathan Winters. I liked Robin Williams a whole lot, though. I mean, in the '70s, it, like to watch Robin Williams come out was a pretty big deal. Oh I mean, yeah. I mean. I, you know, and I know he gets a lot of shit from people just from. Well, he may he may he may have still he may have taken he may have borrowed some material here and there. Well, yeah. But uh, but uh, I did I hung out with him at um, SF Sketchfest a couple years ago. He was like the nicest guy in the world. Like he he'll hang out with you like a yeah. comic will hang out with you. Right. He'll riff. Yeah. And he, he riffs and he's really funny and really nice and just like but like he can break and have a conversation, which well, is something that's, I didn't that's expect. That's really good. I like that because the problem with a lot of those guys and myself was you know for years you just didn't you didn't want to let anybody know who was home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know you just were too afraid because because all the crap that they did was you know was a, a product of a lot of pain and a lot of trouble and of stuff course. like that. Yeah. You have to answer for like the material you're doing. If you're a weirdo on stage and then you're a weirdo off stage, you don't have to like apologize or, you know, let anyone like know that it's like a stage thing. Well, not know? only that, but I, but I'm sure something happens when you when you know that people perceive you as like, "Oh, this is one of the funniest people in our culture." Oh, yeah. You probably you feel like, "Oh, I always have to be that guy." Oh, so yeah, when I was when I was just starting out, um I remember I, I, I didn't think of myself as funny when I was a kid. I was just weird. I could do noises and little voices and did weird stuff trying to screw with my perception. Like I would take a hand mirror and put it like underneath my eye and walk and just see what was on the ceiling. Oh, shit. And it screwed with my perception. No wonder I was a drug addict for like a couple decades and a big <laughs> drinker. I couldn't wait. Yeah, once once the mirror wasn't cutting it anymore, then you gotta you gotta move it. That's like no, that's a gateway drug. It, then you put it the other way, and we'll chop lines. <laughs> on it. That mirror never went away. <laughs> but um, but you know, I tell people I used to do that, and they go, "Why?" And I said, "Because it's so cool. You felt like you if you slanted the mirror and you watched a wall that was perpendicular to you, and you walked down the hall, the wall was suddenly in front of you if you just watched the mirror, and you were walking through solid objects. That's a weird feeling." That's pretty. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Try it at home, kids. Yeah, I love you it. No, do try it at home. <laughs> <laughs> and if anybody gives you any garbage, hit them over the head with the mirror, <laughs> and make them buy you a new one. Because that's how that's how your imagination grows. Yeah. That's how it's it's like you know triggered like an atomic bomb is when you see things that aren't there, and you learn to see things that aren't being shown to you later in life, and you learn to hear things that no one's saying later on in life. Well, it's one of the reasons why I was a philosophy major in school is because I always liked that Steve Martin said, it screws up your thinking just enough. And yeah. I thought, oh, well, this is this would be a great 
major for comedy. Well, yeah. Well, the thing about talent, I've always thought that that talent was some sort of mental illness. It was a form of mental illness because it is aberrant to the human condition. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's like not everybody can do it or understand it. They just kind of like it. Right. You, know? you mean in terms of like 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 the the uh, the uh, the Overman type of the, the the Superman character, the person with extra abilities that uh, yeah. That but people resented it. If you were Superman, it was one thing. But if you were just some dopey kid that could do all these things, I wondered why no one uh, people would just look at you and ignore you because kids in school, I mean, you know, wished that they could do that. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was nothing. I thought nothing of all the things I was able to do because it was just downplayed by everyone else. But when did you figure, like, oh, this is actually, I could apply this to a career? When I was about 30. <laughs> it took that long. Yeah, it did because I was a musician. I wanted to be a musician more than I wanted to be anything. Mm -hmm. And I was a really great guitar player, maybe, maybe as good as, you know, doing voices. And I just had to give that up at some point because uh, my Spanix license was revoked in 1978 <laughs> and uh, you're looking a little silly there shaking your ass around but uh, you know that's really what I wanted and when that didn't work out I always could do voices and weird stuff like on stage if a guitar broke a string or an amp blew up you know those things used to happen a lot because they didn't have the electrical things sewn up back in the 60s you know amps would just like start making whining, screeching noises, and you didn't know what the hell to do. So I used to make a bit out of everything. Oh yeah, well just to let you know, that shit still happens. I'm in a <laughs> comedy musical thing. And oh, are you? Yeah, we have a, we, we have a, uh, we don't perform as much anymore, but when we did, I would say six, six times out of ten, some technical thing would go wrong. Like, I mean, it wasn't so much amps blowing up, but it was just like amps dropping out. Sure. Or like the or or the or the the overall sound cutting out, or a light cutting out, or a mic not working, and 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 that always made for better shows. Well, that's probably where improv was born. You know, in and of itself, is out of embarrassment. You know, like, <laughs> what are you gonna do now? <laughs> it's sort of like you're sort of like you're paragliding a, a, a an updraft of failure, and you just have to figure out how to, how to glide that puppy in. Yeah, I wasn't cool. You know, I would panic when things went wrong on stage. And I would just, you know, <laughs> grab a mic. <laughs> all right, everybody, this is Johnny Bannon, the human cannon, saying what's in you has got to come out, and that's what rock and roll is all about. Before we eat this stuff, we got Mr. Roy Orbison, 1961, on CBS-FM. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I would go into the song because the amp was finally straightened out. They'd kicked it enough times or something. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh -huh. What yes, kind of music did your band play? That's for? where all the crap that I do basically came from is, you know, what the hell do you do now? <laughs> what did you, what did you say? Oh, what kind, what of, kind of music was uh, the band? Oh, it was always rock and roll stuff. Yeah. I mean, I played songs like, uh, oh, I don't know, a whole lot of love like the week they came out, you know, because yeah. I was out playing in 69. I was actually playing in 66. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, all the songs that seem like they're a million years old, because they are. I was playing because it was top 40. You know, yeah. all the classic rock stuff. Nice. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I was I remember playing and trying to... I used to watch the monkeys because I could learn chords. I used to look at the back of albums covers and see the monkeys playing guitars and stuff, and I would 
take a magnifying glass to look and see what was going on on the neck of the guitar. Were they me. ever playing anything, or were they just... No, I, I there was this strange position I saw everybody playing, and they weren't like open chords where you played at the bottom of the neck. They were up higher, and your finger was barred across mm -hmm. the fretboard. I had no idea what that was. I didn't know if it was legit. <laughs> I didn't know. And, and then I find out, yeah, that's real. That's a B watch. chord, a bar chord, and you got to be a real man to play those. I used right. to watch Help, and I would pause it. Uh, I had an old VHS of Help, and I would pause it and see what George Harrison was doing. Oh. And that's how I learned how to play all the Beatles see, songs. See, the thing... And I'd be like, wait, that doesn't sound right. And then I'd figure out which strings he was muting, and it was like, Jeez. wow. Every, everything used to mean so much, the little that you were exposed to, because it wasn't a rock and roll society. You know, it, it wasn't even a youth-oriented culture in 66. It was, old guys still ruled the world, you know, guys with fedoras, and I'd like some pie and coffee. You know, <laughs> for, uh, for a nickel. Yeah. Uh, let, let the kid do it, you know, and the kid was 35. <laughs> Get the kid to do it. Hey, we're gonna bang these broads. No, it's really the world was like that. Hey, why don't you drop that dame on my prick? They would say stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. No one talks like that anymore. And she was a blonde. <laughs> you know, those uh, narratives were what guys were supposed to be, you know. Oh, she was a blonde. A blonde that would make a bishop want to kick a hole in a stained glass window. <laughs> <laughs> the old gumshoe. But the old stuff is what a lot of those guys were trying to be. And if you if you were 35, you were still a kid. Now if you're 35, you're outensy. You know, out of a job. Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Wait. Well, I mean, I was always expecting the worst. I, I worked crappy jobs. That's all I ever did. And just so I could think my thoughts. I never wanted to be engaged in something that would rob me of, you know, whatever process is going on in my head. I used to play <laughs> records in my head. You know, I could play them backwards and forwards and post-produce them and add <laughs> reverb or, you know, cut off the end. <laughs> It was it was just a weird place to be other than face reality because, uh, you know, I came from a really rough, terrible, horrifying childhood and uh, I was ready-made for just abstractions and, you know, mm -hmm. abstract thinking. Well, what was your first job? Like, what, 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 what kind of... When you started, when, you, when you're like, all right, music, maybe not so much. I'm gonna well, no, I was 14, I think, or 15, and I worked at the YMCA in West Roxbury, Massachusetts, and it was raking leaves and cutting the lawn and just getting gum out of waste baskets and, you know, paint the weight room. You know, <laughs> all purpose. But, but in the entertainment business, what was your first job? Oh, like, uh, like your first non-music job, like your first acting. Oh, well, that was radio. Um, in um, 1980, uh, I got into radio in Boston, and that was kind of fun. Radio was kind of what I was looking for, mm -hmm. because you could express yourself. It was FM, and they hadn't clamped down and made everything so, you know, how uh, the, uh, the administrations got a hold of a beautiful forum for people's ideas and music and everything, and they had to, you know niggle away at it and chip it away so that they could co-opt the things they needed from it mm -hmm. and say, be real funny today. Mm. You know? Or, uh, I liked what you were doing like a week ago. You were doing that thing. Do more of that. Mm -hmm. It's like, the cement head doesn't understand that you just can't be the guy you were last week. Right. Because otherwise, it would never exist if that's the way you worked. Right. You know, and these guys, I couldn't stand them because they... I don't know how we sat at the same table. There's one guy that doesn't know what it feels like to have an idea. 
there's a guy, and then there's a guy who's sitting there that doesn't know what it feels like to not have an idea. Right. And the two got to sit at the same table and coexist. So I have my problems. You know, it's like you know, hey, I heard you were uh, pretty funny. What do you do? What do you do? I like do a little stuff on the radio. You know, how are you gonna tell somebody? And say, say something funny. Tell me a joke. Yeah, you're a good-looking guy. <laughs> huh? I don't know. <laughs> We're going to go to commercial. You know, it's funny. I had, I had dinner with uh, Dr. Demento a couple of weeks ago. Because oh, wow. we, did that, we did that show at Largo. And just sort of talking to him about <clears throat> when he started in radio, like guys who uh, had a lot of weight in radio had the most records. Like, he had this huge record collection that was really rare because all this shit was difficult to track down. Mm. And it just seemed funny to me, like, now we live in a culture of, you can have anything in the history of, the, of recorded history and, at any time. Yeah. And, but, but just the idea that he actually had to go out, find all these records, and built this massive collection, and, and he, he had this incredible library of knowledge in his head, and that's what actually made him powerful. Right. They're in the radio business because no one, people, other people couldn't compete with that. It just seems like such an interesting, different time. Yeah, it was. Um, the thing I was going to say, you touched on something earlier about how you could pause yeah. and watch something. If only, yeah. if only that stuff existed when I was like 14 and 15. Uh, when something was playing on the television, it might be the coolest thing you ever saw in your life, but the chances are you were never, ever going to see it again. Oh, ever. Yeah. Ever. You didn't know when it was going to be repeated, yeah. if, if ever. You just thought, oh my God. And what you would do is you would become this obsession machine that just sucked every detail out of the screen and out of the audio uh, so you could recreate it for someone else. Yeah. You know, because like... like you know, you could just say, I saw the coolest thing last night. And they say, well, what was it about? And I said, well, I can show you, you know, and I would do the whole thing for them. And there was a desperation when you didn't have a way to hang on to something. And uh, it made you better, actually. That's incredible. It's just not, it's not something that anyone, I mean, I sort of remember that time. I mean, I was born in the 70s. So, I mean, I... I I, I kind of have about the same lifespan as like VHS players and computers yeah. were, you know, uh, you know, consumer computers. But um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just well, of course, that's why you would have to you would play albums in your head and edit them and play them backwards and stuff because you didn't have all the shit to distract you, you that we had have the, today. You had to bank them somewhere. Yeah. Did you ever do stand up? Um, I did. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Before I went into radio, it was like 1978, I think, and I and I was hanging around with the greatest guys in Boston. They were the funniest guys, Steve Sweeney and Jimmy Tingle and uh, Lenny Clark. Oh, yeah, I remember Lenny Clark. Yeah, they were all Lenny Clark. just wild, <laughs> wild, funny Boston guys. And uh, there is that whole Irish sensibility when it comes to comedy, and it's very much like like Jewish and Yiddish sensibilities for comedy. Um, it's a lot alike because there's a lot of guilt. I guess that's, that's Catholicism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom's Italian Catholic. I know. I know all that shit. I know all the. Uh... <laughs> oh, I grew up and I knew the mass in Latin. <laughs> yeah, I had to take. Yep. And this standing and kneeling and sitting—it was like an est meeting. When I think about it now, you know, like yeah. those cult meetings. You know, now stand up, please. Sit down, please. Can I go to the back? Sit down. Stand up. I, yeah. I, I always. I mean, I. I I'm sure someone must draw the parallels between OCD and religion. Like, like it's the same. Like people, you know, people with OCD, it's ritualistic behavior to try to, 
you know, I, I guess prevent bad things from happening or, or just to, you know, gain some sense of control in some way over things they don't understand. And when you, when you look at all the ritual that is in all those masses or in religions or you have to wear this thing and you can't do this on this certain day and then you have to go to this on this other day. Yeah. That's all, that's all just obsessively ritualistic behavior. Except, right? except yeah. one thing. A dude made it up. <laughs> well, OCD, some a dude made it dude up. Some dude made all of this stuff up. Who that guy? It was to keep uh-huh. women under the spit uh-huh. for as long as they could. It was to keep people in line and you were the arbiter of what was good and what was bad. Illiterate what people, a illiterate, illiterate people too. Like like people who, like how else can you control masses of people unless you can say, hey, there's this thing that's bigger than you. Yeah, and, and he uh, made you, and if he gets pissed at you, you're going down. And I'm the one who's got, I, I can talk to him, yes. and I will, Well, why do you think I'll George Bush decided that he was talking to God one day? It's like, <laughs> no one has the guts, not that he can prove it or disprove it, it's even worse than that. No one has the guts to say, there's no, there's no one there when you're talking. It's a scary prospect. It's a scary yeah. prospect to think that it just doesn't get any bigger than what we are right now. It's a horrifying prospect. Well, can I tell you something? It's not like I just came up with these ideas. When I was in parochial school, the nuns were, were homicidal maniacs. They were crazy. Not homicidal, but they were just out of their minds um, angry. And if you questioned anything, you were in for the, you know the punch of your life in the head. Um, I remember one time I, I used to like oil paintings because I did do art when I was a kid. And I looked at these old, old oil paintings in the parochial school and one was of the creation, not the creation, Adam and Eve. Okay. And they were in the garden and there was the serpent and there was the apple. And I'm just looking at it and I'm evaluating it. And I was really super analytical when I was a kid because I grew up hyper vigilant because I always had to know who and what was going to hurt me next Mm because my dad made sure that that's the way I was going to grow up. Sure. You know, I can tell you what kind of a night I was in for by the sound of the key in the door. All right. Or the way the car pulled up in the driveway. I could tell that it's it's that dad, you know. Kids are insanely sensitive that way. Well, yeah, but you could hear a car door from up the street if you were, like, so vigilant. And, uh, well, anyway, that vigilance and that, that... concentration and analyzing something. I'm looking at the painting and the nun comes up and she says, what are you looking at? I said, I'm just looking at the painting. Yeah, what of it, you know? Well, it's nice. Yeah. You know, I mean, just no patience, not not wanting to even hear Like a what, cop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I said, uh, so God created, fashioned man out of the clay of his earth and he fashioned them by his own hand. That's right. You know, like, what are you, retarded? Everybody knows that. <laughs> and I said, and, and he was in his image and likeness of God. Yes. And I said, and then when this clay took human form, God took a piece of Adam's rib and created a woman. That's right, what's your point? <laughs> And I just looked and I just said, why do they have belly buttons? (laughs) And she, her head was like a tea kettle that was on high, you know. Right. (laughs) And uh, she got so angry and she wanted to hit me. And uh, because I thought about it, neither of them was born. Right. So why would they need a belly button? They were clones. 
<laughs> yeah, but even still, I mean, we have belly buttons, sure. so, and, and we were fashioned in God's image and likeness. So does that mean God had a belly button? And then you open up a whole new, you know, who was Mrs. God? You know, <laughs> who was Mama God? Daddy God? And, I just think I think it's funny that uh, you know a, uh, of course, an an egocentric race. Like a narcissistic race, like humans, of course, would be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." The, the being that created the entire universe, uh, he made he made us to be just like him. Of course, yes. of course, yeah. because we're awesome. Yeah, we're awesome, and uh, and then they would have you believe that the only part I liked about being likened to the creator, I believe in a higher power. I'm not totally, you know, like I don't believe in anything except myself. Right. I, I do believe in a higher power. I don't believe that you should be with others. And try to convince each other that he's there and who did what for him today. And no, it's spiritual. It's one to one. I know there's something, but uh, that's the way I prefer it because I knew everything about theology and religion, mm-hmm. and no one could ever explain anything to me. You had to take everything on faith, and science is empirical, and so there's a still a black and white battle over that today in this country. Yeah. The only thing scientists will cave in on where they meet religion is when a cell decides to go right or wrong and it does one or the other, that they don't think it's arbitrary really, or or random. They think that something else has a hand in it, that that's as far as they go. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm open... To stuff like that. There's a lot of ooga booga out there we don't know about. <laughs> of course there is. And I, I, I mean, there really is. I mean, just the other day, I'm looking at this picture of a new, a baby black hole, you know? Yeah. <laughs> They're and, so adorable. Uh, they really age. are. You they know, they're be such cute. assholes, though. They really uh, do. Yeah, the big black hole showed me pictures of the little black holes, <laughs> and it was in his wallet. Oh, yeah, I was wearing the floppy hat. Yeah, it was really yeah. Just, so all the supernovas are like, I get it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and then they put a baseball glove on the little black hole. See, so like, hmm, he's going to be just like me. <laughs> just and the cats and the cradle and the black hole. <laughs> but it's all, that is hysterical. Because I used to think about stuff like that all the time. As I used to personify everything, like a bottle, yeah. or sunglasses, or anything. Because because I used to see people like Jonathan Winters do that. Yeah. You know, if someone said, "Hey, Jonathan, I think I heard your sunglasses say something," and all of a sudden he'd get that look in his eye, that twinkle, and he would go, "Uh huh, uh huh." So you're saying stuff to other people when I'm not listening. Huh? <laughs> uh huh. Uh-huh. Now I see where it's all going. No, you don't. Aha. Uh-huh. I knew you were a kid, because a kid, you know, it just like, it would go on and on forever. You have a conversation with his shoe, or, uh... I love Jonathan Winters. And Sid Caesar was just, he would make up gibberish that sounded like foreign languages. He was very good at German. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah, I used to um, watch it. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> you know. Oh my God, Reggie Watts is amazing at that. Do you know Reggie Watts? No, he's a he's a yeah. comedy performer and he does music and you know he he builds these songs live with a with a guitar pedal, uh, and he's he does the most incredible. Like global tour of language gibberish that you've ever I heard. I love of. that because that's that came from Sid Caesar. Yeah. Was Sid Caesar kind of a bastard? I had heard that he was sort of a well. He, well, he was a raging alcoholic. He punched ah. out Mel Brooks, right? Why wouldn't he? He didn't punch him out. He uh, he was crazy. I mean, alcoholic psychosis, and he was so talented 
that he he understood so many things that that would make you mad when you understand too much about mm -hmm. the world makes you angry and you got to figure out how to channel it and comedy was obviously his thing but when he got drunk it was like you know Mel Brooks was bugging him you know they had to be in a hotel they were writing and he wouldn't let the writers out and they're up on like the 11th 12th floor and Mel Brooks was just like I want to get out of here I just want to get out of here and finally uh, Sid had it he says you want to go out you want to go out? And he grabbed them and brought them over to the window and hung them outside the window. There, there's out. Meet out. Hi. Say hi to out. You know, and <laughs> then pulled them back in. But that he could have dropped them. Really, the Suge Knight of his time. He Suge really was. Oh. <laughs> really was the Suge Knight of his time. It was the Def Jam ref. What is the? <laughs> I don't know the. Yeah. Whatever the. Your MC brain just Sid. Died. MC Sid. Yeah. You want to go out? You want to go out? I was I love the movie My Favorite Year. You want to go out? Did you ever see Did you ever see My Favorite Year? Yes. Where the just the portrayal of Joseph Bologna's character is that Sid Caesar guy yes. who's just like like a sociopath. Yeah, I thought he did a great job. Yeah, I thought he did a real good job because from one sociopath to another <laughs> to another. No, I, I thought he did a great job in that because Sid was likable. Yeah, I mean, people loved him, but they also had to cover for him after the show. Because I met him, I worked, I got to work with my idol. Not only meet him, but work with him in a comic book movie. It was this Mark Hamill movie we did called Comic Book the Movie. It was sort of a mockumentary, and Sid Caesar was in it, and so was Jonathan Winters. So I was in the Hall of Kings when I did a scene with the two of them, and I, I was like David Byrne, you know, I was like looking at these two guys riffing, and I was hitting myself in the head like, my God, how did I get here? You know, and you may find yourself sitting next to Sid Caesar, and you may find yourself riffing with Jonathan Winters. How do I work this? I could, you know, it's, that's the reality of that song. Is one day you just kind of wake up and you go, "How the fuck? That who am yeah, I? How did I? Get, who? Yeah, yeah. How do I work this? Now, when did you? Uh, well, first of all, I want to go back for a second. I'm say, all over the place, but I like this though. No, no. Yeah. People say that guy can't stay on a subject. Well, it doesn't matter. We don't. We don't ever stay on subjects. Yeah. Oh, good. We, we good. bounce around. Good. It's, it's an hour of just. It's just like freeform word jazz, baby. Yeah, yeah. I hate myself. And people actually listen. <laughs> they do. <laughs> Weirdly, they do. All we have to yeah. do is get it like some bagel place to sponsor us. And, <laughs> you know, if anybody's, you know, want to be heard, we're heard by like 28 people. Yeah. So go out and buy well, bagels. There's us four. And then you know, at radio, radio was always, uh, what I know about radio, because I was in it for so long, is that it's a, it's a delivery device that delivers, you know, Advertisers to cust—I mean, uh, customers to advertisers. Oh yeah, I mean, I think it's people, a delivery device. People forget that. I think we all we all look at uh, television and and film and even and, and radio, and you know, we get sort of selfish about it, and we're sort of like, oh yeah, no, this is an artistic medium, and it's like, well, it, it's technically well, just a way to—it's just technically just a way to pull your attention to something so you can look at ads and they can sell you stuff. Right, and it's noble. I mean, otherwise there wouldn't be radio, there wouldn't be television or anything. There almost isn't radio anymore. Well, no, I agree with you there. I mean, radio—you know—television got to the same place. I mean, I think. Uh, Television kind of died 35 years ago, in my estimation, you know, because I grew up from the beginning watching the cathode ray when it was new. Mm -hmm. 
sat in the living room and people were just, it was magnified. You know, if you had a tiny little screen, they'd sell you a magnifier that they could put oh, yeah. in front of it and you could like see this junk up close. And all it looked like was x-rays mostly and static, but, <laughs> but the little that was there, I clung to, you know, tenaciously. I just clung to it because it was the coolest thing I had ever experienced. You can really focus in on television. I think anyone who's ever masturbated to scrambled porn. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're right. You can yeah. really make out yeah. what you want to make yeah, out. That's why I have a thing for black women. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to watch porn. Solid Gold and, and do that. Solid and, uh, Gold! I think uh, this might have a lot of stained glass on your television. Well, it's not what you think. Why? When did you... Now, I, I also... I mean, I don't want to geek out too much on you here, but... Um, I guess in 1990, 1990 or 91, I'm flipping channels one Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. Just after 11 o'clock, I, I hit Nickelodeon, and I come across Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> and within seconds, it, it instantly flicks a switch in my brain that I... I had never felt previously. And, you know, I, I, I've obsessed on comedy my whole life. I had every comedy album. I watched every comedy special. I put, and then Nickelodeon, ostensibly a children's channel, right. has this show that just cuts through me on a level that I can't explain. It's, and it That was, was your Sid Caesar. I was it, it, molecularly destroyed when I first was exposed to those people. So I guess that was that's that what was, you that, felt. That, it's that, like you were disassembled molecularly, and and you got to figure out a way to put it all back together so you can enjoy the rest. Like Doctor Manhattan, exactly like Doctor Manhattan. But uh, but it was the episode of um, it was uh, Space Madness. It was the Space Madness yeah. episode. Oh, that's a great episode. Yeah. And, oh, yes. and so I, I I tried to. Like, within a couple minutes, I realized, like, holy fuck, I need to possess this. And I tried to jam a tape into the machine as quickly as possible, and I only got part of the episode. Oh, man, remember that? But then the next week, I started taping the episodes <laughs> and started handing all tapes out to all my friends. Like, you've got to watch a show, you've got to watch a show. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, right after right after John Kay, there was this, this like, wonderful sort of indie animation explosion. And, yes. like, liquid television and yep. all these really... And that's where Mike Judge, you know, I well, went that was the beauty all the Spike of, and Mike festivals. That was the beauty of that time is that um, The Simpsons came and Beavis and Butthead was in no way like The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. Usually people want to be first to be second to do something. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and instead of going that route looking for pre-sold, you know, little devices in a show um, they just went with it and then Ren and Stimpy was in no way like Beavis and Butthead and that to me that was like paradise you know because you could watch all these different entities and you couldn't see um, you know every joke coming up 6th Ave like you could on Saturday mornings mm -hmm. you know that's what Nickelodeon did is they put their stuff on Sunday mornings yeah, they, took, they took a look at everything and Jerry Laybourne who was a genius said why don't we just do everything that they're not doing, including the day that we air it? I remember being. I remember uh, looking forward to it because they were hyping Nicktoons. That was like the birth yeah. of Nicktoons, and I remember yeah. it was, I was a it was a weird packaging of like Ren and Stimpy. It was Rugrats. It was Doug and Doug Rugrats and then Ren and Stimpy. And I remember like don't forget Rocco's Modern Life. That was later. That was, that was the original. That was line. after the original. Punch yeah, of the original that. punch was the three of those, and I remember. Yeah, it was, step it back, Junior. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry and in, in yeah, right. uh, Hawaii, it started uh, earlier. It started at like uh, I think uh, Doug was on at seven in the morning. 
So I had to get up early, and I remember me and my brother were so excited about what these cartoons were going to be. And then I remember Doug, I was like, I was like oh, okay, you know, this is good. And Rug did Rats you grow was... up to write your own um, diary? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. That's why he's got a radio show. And you quit yours, so you don't have a radio show. Oh, and by the way, vote for this! <laughs> That's um, the bad kid, Roger. Yeah, Roger. And what was, the, what was his friend's name? And Porkchop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Rugrats came in. Rugrats was you know it was about babies, but it was a little adventurous. And I remember like really digging the music and it, how it looks so sloppy. Yeah, it was a very sloppy now, show. I was slightly older than you, so yeah. I I I was not into Rugrats, and it was all about Ren and Stimpy. Yeah, yeah, Ren Stimpy though was I didn't understand why it was along with these two other cartoons. It didn't want to make sense. Things is not yeah. like well, that's yeah. the, that's the reason why it, it stuck out like a sore thumb in that animation block because. It's like, what do you pay attention to if you're in a shoe store? I always wanted to be, I had this theory, I always wanted to be the untied shoe. You know what I mean? In a shoe <laughs> store, because if everything is just set out so neatly, and then there's this one with the tongue out, and the laces <laughs> fucked up, you'll stop and, and wonder about it. Like, why did they do this? You know, everybody, and you start thinking about the most inane, but it grabs your attention. And... Uh, being the untied shoe was always kind of a thing I, I liked, um, and that show was definitely an untied shoe. It didn't stack quite right, and um, you know, it wasn't static. I guess that's the word. It was just it was uh, just odd and gross at times. But like, it was you know. the, it was the perfect balance because because I know I think John Kay, who I mean you know his his. Just like seeing the influences of Ralph Bakshi and Harvey Kurtzman and all these really great well, Terry artists. Terry Tunes. And Terry Tunes. Paul Terry, a lot of that stuff was and, in there. And, uh, and, and seeing the, um, just, the, there, I think there was the perfect balance between, I think Nickelodeon, because I think left to completely his own devices, it might be a little too insane for people. Right. But <laughs> having, having these boundaries that Nickelodeon, and still getting enough stuff through, I think I just feel like was the really the perfect balance. It was. Of it a show. It of was a, show. a wonderful uh, time, and it was a wonderful experience to just be involved with that. I mean, you know, I was, uh, I was in radio. I had moved from Boston to, uh, to New York when I was working on the Howard Stern show. Mm-hmm. And it was like 91, and I had auditioned for these Nickelodeon people. One was for Doug, and uh, the other was for a show named Ren and Stimpy. Now, I worked with John Kay in 1988, because he was hired to animate a revival of Beanie and Cecil. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was 1988, and it was on ABC, mm-hmm. and we did it out of Vancouver, Canada. So I was still in radio in Boston, Okay. but I had met uh, John Kay, I met Bill Ray, I think, Mm-hmm. And Jim Gomez, yeah. who I associate with to this day. I mean, we, we work on a lot of stuff. Together. I mean, I used to hang out at Spumco with when I was in college. I, I just I started hanging out there and became friends with Vince Waller. And that was on Melrose. Ave. It was on Melrose okay. Ave in this shitty little building right at right yeah. near right near Paramount. That's where we recorded all that stuff. And it was just a very sterile sign that just said Spumco on it. And um, and I, I just I used to hang out there because I wanted to. I mean, I was a I was. You were lucky. He let you stay there. One day, the scraggly kid comes in and said he wanted to write a song for Ren and Stimpy, and they they said, "Yeah, that's great," and they threw it in the wastebasket. Oh. It was Kurt Cobain. Oh shit! <laughs> that's an awesome story. Yeah, I think John was like, you know, who does this guy think he is? Who are all these people think they are coming in here? It's probably what's probably why he shot himself. Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah, that's yeah. probably why. Well, I had Kurt Kaboom. I had. <laughs> 
I had painted. I had painted. <laughs> Sorry, that's all right. I had painted. I took. I took a television for an art project in college. I took a uh, like a the, the the tube out of a television set and painted Ren and Simpy on it. Uh-huh. And I took it to Spumco and I gave it to Vince Waller and and they they put it on display like it was out in the lobby at Spumco. Yes. And when Spumco when Ren and Simpy got. Uh, taken away from yeah. John and they were cleaning out the offices uh, I went to pick it up and he signed it for me and I still have it and it's like oh, one wow. of my fa- it's in storage it's super protected <laughs> like it's well, one of the he's as pure as they get you know he really is as an artist he's as pure as they get with all the nuttiness included but the thing about having this sick crazy talent is it's not an excuse it should never be an excuse to act like an aberrant seven year old mm-hmm. you know what I mean because because everybody acts like that now. Everybody wants to act like an aberrant seven-year-old. Usually it was the artists, and I think the artists got to step aside and lead the way for all these infantilized adults that exist now. And, and uh, you know, try to, try to take them away from, you know, anarchy's fun to play with and dabble with, but you don't know what end is up after a while. It's not a sustainable model. <laughs> no, when you have total freedom, you know, it's like... Uh, it's like today in, in today's day and age, they can go, well, we can put the arms on the Venus de Milo. What are we waiting for? We can do it now. <laughs> really the technology. Do, do you remember? And I we can age it to the same age that the Venus de Milo is. I think it was an MGM cartoon. <clears throat> it might have been Chuck Jones, but I can't remember. But they're, one of my favorite cartoons of all time, because I was a cartoon fanatic too, was, uh, was called The Dot and the Line. Do you remember that one? Yes, I do. Yeah. The Dot and the Line. And it's, it's a very simple story, and it's this... This line falls in love with a dot, mm-hmm. but she wants to date this squiggle. And every time they go to the squiggle, it's this like beatnik music, because yeah. he's all messy and he's got, right. And so the line discovers that he can bend and form an angle, and so he starts creating all these beautiful shapes. And uh, and that when was he brilliant, it's brilliant because the first night the the first night he does it, he wakes up the next morning and he has a terrible hangover. And the the narrator says that he realized that freedom is not a license for chaos. Really, and it's such a brilliant. I forgot about it. It's such all a brilliant that. portrayal. And then so, then when he when he takes this sort of crafted art to the dot, she realizes the squiggle is is this disgusting squiggle, and and well, she noticed that he picked his ear. Like, well, you know, I I love all of that stuff. That's as pure as it gets. Like I said, but you can. You can let yourself get so carried away with it that you become an amateur human being and chaos bleeds from your little creative world into everybody's life. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to play with one of my idols, musical idols, Brian Wilson. I played lead guitar in his band for a while. Holy wow. shit! Yeah, I, we were on Letterman one night and I still have the tape somewhere. But, uh, but he was the most angelic being I ever met in my life. He was like an amateur human being. He was so pure. And that that he was like a child, you know, except that he was so beyond brilliant. I mean, stuff he did, you know, 37, 40 years ago, won him a Grammy like four or five years ago, mm-hmm. which Smile was an album that was never released. And they, they shit canned it because he was, they said he was too crazy. And uh, one of my favorite songs... And I told, I get to tell him this stuff. I said, one of my favorite songs is I Wasn't Made for These Times. I said, it's the saddest song in the world because I sort of knew what, what you were thinking. It was like, when you, when you fall in love with an artist, every time they do something, it's like getting a letter from home or a, a, an email from somebody just so dear to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, 
Yeah, because the words are like, you know, every time I get the inspiration to go change things around, no one wants to help me look uh, where new things might be found. And it's the story of any wildly visionary and creative person is they got to do battle with their nearest and dearest. It's like, you know. Because they believe that what they're doing has to be done and no one understands. Yeah, and the other people are like, you know, we got a good thing doing. What is, why is he trying to fuck everything up now? Because he has to move forward. Right. He yeah. has to be progressive. That's the nature of it. Okay. No, you're going to record that thing you do in Spanish. <laughs> and then it, yeah, I want right. something snappy. I want That's something it. fun. And we're going to do a stage play. Can you yeah. can you explain to me, though, the song about my favorite vegetables? What is it? Is it, is it just literally oh, he, a song about his favorite vegetables? Yeah, because he decided he was going to become vegetarian. Uh-huh. He decided that he was too unhealthy. I think a diet of LSD maybe three times a day <laughs> doesn't fit into the food pyramid, you know, the basic food pyramid. Are you sure? Oh, no, it encompasses the entire pyramid. No, no, pussy should be one of the basic food groups. <laughs> at least, they, they well, won't at give least you a foundation. That. At least a foundation. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, come on. You know. You well, know I want to throw that in there a little bit. Come on. Huh? <laughs> come on, food pyramidists. Throw a little pussy in your diet. Yeah, come on. I won't elucidate or elaborate, uh, but that thing about his uh, thing with—he was—that was the purity coming out. He wanted to become, and he started eating at this vegetarian place on Sunset Boulevard, and he got really into it because you know it's like everything's extremes in that world. It's mm-hmm. mania. Mm-hmm. You're either up here or you're down on the floor with your nose pressed. Um, and so when he got into something, he would totally and physically, mentally, and emotionally just plunge into it. And he started writing songs about whatever was going on. You know, like one song is just directions to his house. <laughs> and it's like a samba. It sounds like a nightclub song, you know. It's like, yeah, you take a right. Yeah, and up Mulholland Drive, then you go down here. And you know, I know somebody else in my life who, who is almost exactly like that. Was I, I came up with Jonathan Richmond, mm-hmm. uh, The Modern Lovers. And then he was in that movie, if you don't know who he is, he was in that movie, Something About Mary. He was the balladeer yeah. with the guitar, and he yep. gets like shot at the end and <laughs> drowned. Uh, but he also wrote the song Roadrunner. Yeah, yeah, that, I loved that song when it came out because that was, again, one of these things is not like the others. You know, there were groups like, uh, God, on these glittery, you know, guys with eye makeup on and big hair, and, and all of a sudden there's this guy that can barely sing going, Road runner, road runner, going faster miles an hour. I'm in love with the modern world, modern sound, modern Boston town. You know, and he was from Boston, and I got to meet him early, early on. And uh, he took me on the road with him because he thought I was funny. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, but it was all based on just his purity. He says, you know, who am I to stand in the way of the next George Burns? <laughs> and he really did say that. And I said, well, that's nice of you, but I don't know what I'm doing. He says, so what? Wow. <laughs> and he left me out there, you know, and I had to learn real quick. Like, that was that vigilance thing again. I, ne- I didn't really need to have anything ready. I was born ready. <laughs> You know, with Plan B and Plan, you know, 19 and 20. Um, But that was a great experience. He was so pure. Sometimes he would show up with no instruments. And they'd say, well, what are you going to do? And and sometimes he would just come out on stage and he'd do the percussion to his songs and walk around on his hands and knees and, you know, and put on a show because it all came out of him. That's what I love more than anything is people... 
don't expect magic to come out of a human being. It always has to be facilitated by something like a concert now. It's lights and bombs, and it's an event. Mm-hmm. Even the songs are taped, but people don't give a fuck. Right. You know, they don't, because it's an event. So the idea of someone standing in front of you, buck nude, <laughs> and creating magic is almost gone. And he would do, he'd have a song. He was another child view of the world, like Brian was. Uh, even though Brian wrote all those cool songs and everything, if you listen to them later on, they're just minimalist. And, and the chords he would throw in, those left hooks and those right jabs, yeah. it had classical musicians standing on their heads and barking like Lassie trying to figure out what it was. Well, and then just and then just harmonies that twist your brain. They did twist your brain. And, and that was my liberal education to just about all of music because Brian incorporated everything into his music. They say it was Chuck Berry meets the four freshmen but it was a lot more than that it was way it was classical movements he was one of the first guys to put the um, the third note in a chord as the root you know started on that you'd say well that's crazy you know but then you listen to classical music and it's nothing but that stuff yeah took you for a ride you know it wasn't like you know Louis yeah. Louis and the songs that weren't uh, the drums on the on the tracks were always like sparse and sparse. yeah and just kind of going all over the place not keeping a 4/4 time just coming in at the right times and only the right times I mean I always I always wonder about that like would I want that level of talent and success if I knew that I had to be mostly unraveled? Um, no. Because yeah, <laughs> then you, you, can't, you can't even really appreciate it. But the thing is, you don't have a choice when you think about it. You know, I don't know how many of us planned to be where we sit today. And someone says, how did you get into this? And I was like, I really, I had no choice. It grabbed me and took me. I had, I had nothing to say about it. It just said, I, on, I, I always say that to people who say, like, well, I'm thinking about doing stand-up. I'm like, if you're, if you really are, if you, if you are designed to do stand-up, you will do it because you don't have a choice. Like, you just need to get up on stage, and you need, and as much as you fail when you get up, and you feel terrible, and you hate yourself, and you feel like I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. Something else shoves you back out there the very next night That's to right. do it again. You know what though? Um, I hated rejection, just so fiercely. I hated rejection because again, it's all childhood stuff. My dad just rejected me you know, mm-hmm. he just laugh at anything I ever tried to do to be like him he was wildly talented and uh, it's unfortunate but I think all of that crap you know it's true the cliches are true what doesn't kill you if you didn't die you, you know, become a comic well, I mean, it's, like tra- it's like training to run with a bag of boulders on your back your whole life and one day you take them off and your feet leave the fucking ground you know you, you Harrison almost, Burger on yeah you're almost in flight and um you know, I didn't know that that was beneficial, but when you're living through the hell of it, so I don't think anybody could plan for all the uh, residual effects of having to put out like that and having pressure on you and always having to be brilliant. And even when you think you are, someone else doesn't think so and they hold the purse strings and won't bankroll it. Um, I don't know. You know, I used to say the same thing about comedy. I used to say, why the fuck would anyone want to be funny? You know, you walk in the room and... Everyone's looking to you. Right. You know, did you hear about Nixon this morning? You know, it was, uh, you know, you, you were the guy, they were waiting for the remark. Right. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure, man. But I used to do stand-up, but my whole thing was I got on stage and I just used to say, do you ever notice everything? <laughs> you know, and just like look and, you know, play with the mic stand. I know there's a bit in this, you know, you know, <laughs> and, uh. 
but it was when I did voices on stage when the air would become electric. I just didn't have a knack for doing stand-up. I'm too stream of consciousness. And it might work beautifully and brilliant one night, and the next night you go to hell on a twisted metal fireball. <laughs> it really is. You know, you can't just replicate that wonderful, beautiful audience that was no. loving and nurturing <laughs> and, and, and didn't mind that you sat down on the stage and kind of leaned at the first row and just talked to them. There is, you know, an, an audience, audience becomes... Like when you get a group of people together, they they will they whatever this sort of unconscious chemistry that they have kind of makes this sort of unified body that you're having a conversation with. And some nights they're not as you know they're maybe a polite laughers or they you know they're interested, but not or sometimes they're not interested. But then other nights they're fucking explosive, and, and you know you just never know. Or a real professional, a total professional, which I am not. I was never a professional comedian. I was I was comedic and could be funny in different ways, but the more I deliberated about being funny, the worse it was. Mm -hmm. I think I just used to just Tourette out shit and that was the best stuff, you know? <laughs> just, you know? <laughs> and, um, and some people, you know, comics learn real early that there's that face, you know, that everybody will love you and, you, and suddenly you can't hear them clapping, you can't he see the smiles on their face, but you'll see this sour, Face. One person looking at you, scowling. Yeah, and that'll ruin your whole life. And what's what's funny to me about that is that the face, the face, and of course I focused on that face before. But then what happens sometimes is that face will come up to you after the show and go, "Hey, that was that was a great show." And oh, then you yeah. and then you realize, oh, I I am projecting onto that guy what I think, how I think he needs to be enjoying the show. When in fact he has his own way of expressing that he's enjoying the show. So just because. You know, just because someone's not like, ah, my God, I'm a right, does not mean you that they don't love what fail. they're watching. Well, I mean, of course, probably. sometimes it does. But you're waiting for that, that, you know, uh, very uh, satisfying response from a live audience. And I didn't have that kind of rhythm because I had no discipline. I used to go on stage at my own peril, always. And, uh, you know, like I said, sometimes it would work. But I was down south a couple of years ago. Someone said, hey, you know, these clubs will book you sight unseen. And I said, look at this. Every, I know how, you know how many funny people there are that I know that can't work, can't yeah. do stand-up, can't get a booking, and they're offering me, like, headlining gigs in Louisiana, you know, down in Shreveport and here, there, and everywhere. And um, I said, well, I guess. And I went back to find out how it's just really cold out there alone, and anybody thinks they can do it. But the guys that are professionals learn early on that when somebody gives you a hard time, like the guy who screams homo at you. Right. <laughs> you know, when you're in the middle of a joke, homo! <laughs> I've had that happen to me. I've had it happen on stage when I played music. And, and you'd go to the bathroom and feel like you wanted to just hold court with one of your best friends and go get drunk. You know, i got to take a piss. You go in the bathroom, that guy who screamed homo at you is like, Trying to be friendly. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. You know, he's like, you know, no, you you were really that was really fucking funny, you know. Yeah, they they think they uh, they think that I I just did a I just did eight shows in Atlanta, Ow! and they <laughs> and they had to uh, there was one super drunk chick in the audience, and it was just like you know her boyfriend was next to her, and she kept shouting shit out, and and it was it was it was stuff in a way that you couldn't deal with it. Yes, because there was no linear. You just she would just shout out the weirdest stuff, and he, this poor guy, just looked. He was just staring at the floor, so dejected, like, "Oh, this is their life." <laughs> and, uh, 
And I couldn't even, you know, at first I, I, I started to get kind of, you know, sometimes you have to like slap the crowd down like a t teacher in a way if yeah. they start getting a little too mouthy because yeah. you can't lose control of the show. No, it's law and order, man. But she was so fucking insane that at a certain point I just, it, I, I was like, I gotta let this go. These people, I feel so, I felt bad. Cause I could, ju I just saw a small window into what their life was, and it just bummed me out. No, you know what it is. I think, I think if you're a guy like Larry the Cable Guy, you're safe, you know, in certain places like where people, you know, where they love Walmart and they, you know, and they like jokes about being in Walmart. And they enjoy getting her done. Yeah, yeah, get her done. Mm -hmm. I like how he he thinks all inanimate objects are her. <laughs> he's, maybe he's just no. He's actually really really funny. I wouldn't say a disparaging word about the guy. He's really funny. Uh, and I was on some show where he was on first, and I was going to be the guest, except I was on satellite, and I think he was in the studio. And this was a conservative bent show, so he was kicking ass, you know. And then there's me. <laughs> that has something to say about everything that might not be so funny. And, um, you know, he, he said, uh, he looked at the monitor, he goes, what is that? What is that, Tom Arnold over there? Oh, shit. <laughs> you know, and I said, I wish I could be funny. Maybe I should grow a goatee, but I'm afraid somebody will call it jailhouse pussy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the thing was, is I should have I lightened up and just rolled with it, but... Uh, it's not like I'm another professional stand-up. Because I was down in, uh, I was down in one of those towns, and, uh, and I had taken one of those gigs where it was like, you know, I was talking to Jimmy Walker, remember Dynamite? Of course J. J. I remember Walker. Jimmy Walker. He has a lot of these rooms, they're his rooms, and I said, JJ, I want to give the, mo the money back to the guy. You know, after I got off, this guy was so bummed out, and, and the crowd, you know, there were other places where they were really into it, but a lot of them would leave because it might be too eclectic mm -hmm. or whatever, just too different from what they expect. And I don't think there's such a thing as a bad audience or a bad comedian. I just think there's such a thing as a bad fit. Mm -hmm. Of course. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's almost no fault. Of course. And uh, so when I uh, was down there, I mentioned Harry Potter, and I heard hissing. What? <laughs> Because Snape was Snape there? No, it was Voldemort. I don't know the difference. Are you yeah, parcel right. mouth? <laughs> yeah, right. Don't mention him. <laughs> uh, no, so I, I said, uh, I had to stop the show and just go, um, are you hissing, I'm booing because I'm saying Harry Potter? And the woman's there, they're all proud as shit, you know? Yep. And um, I said, well, why is that? You know, because it's evil, oh. and, uh, and there's a whole biblical fight over this stuff, yeah, and I a know. religious fight. And I said, "Let me ask you something. It's close to Halloween." Yep. And I said, "So, do you take your brood, your kids with you, and you march over to like Walmart, and you you come over and take candy out of a big plastic cauldron?" you know, with a witch, you know, which is basically the devil's representative. You know, she's like the Avon lady of hell. <laughs> you know, the, the, the doing the, uh, what do you call it, the advance work. Right. You know, <laughs> you know, have some candy. And I said, you know, but you'll go there and do that, you know, and she says, but that's not real. And everybody's like, yeah, she's right. And I said, <laughs> neither is Harry. <laughs> or many of the things you believe in. Yeah, but, but, but when you so, <laughs> many well, of the hocus pocus. Yeah, yeah I know, but you're, you're asking for war. Oh, I know, I know, I know, yeah. I know. You I, know just, I mean, I love, uh, I love the idea that you know, when you look at these, uh, 
Look at these preachers down there. It's all, it's like when you get really into the Bible Belt, where I'm from, I'm from the South, you know, so yeah. I, I grew up in the Bible Belt. And where? Tennessee. I heard of it. And yeah, it's a little, <laughs> little place. And it's, it's like, you know, like, they, like these preachers, these congregations, it's, they're almost like, they're almost, it's almost like Sopranos in a way. They're like, sure would be a shame if something would have happened to your crops and your family. Yeah. <laughs> I, could, I could take care of that for you. Like, it, there's such an element of, of fear. And, but to say know, that God is punishing the gays when a disaster hits anywhere is so... It's, 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 it's unforgivable. It's fucking unforgivable. I know, and it, it's like, okay, well, I, I buy that there's gays here and there and everywhere, but when, when the, when the uh, polar ice caps melt... Is that the gays? I mean, there's not really any gays up there unless they're gay polar it's just, bears. They're not. They're not melting. They're just taking a break. It's just that if you, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you, the scope of your thought is narrow, uh, you feel like everything has to be a reason. It's sort of like almost exactly like what you said earlier. It's like some people cannot. It's you know like people need a prefab belief system where they they can just have simple easy answers. Why does that happen? Because of that. Okay, done. I yeah, won't think well, about it no more. Well, like that's that it. That contributes yeah. to the death of critical thinking. Well, of course. And and that's what's really dangerous to me is that uh, we're we're like we're so polarized as people. I can't believe that the people who get fucked the most will go out and gleefully vote against their own interests. They get tricked every time, and and then blame the wrong people it's like a kick at the cat mm-hmm. you know it's like my dad just kicked the shit out of me and you go out and you see a cat and you go <clears throat> you know it's that's the same thing it's like you you're taking all your anger and blame out in the most unproductive and wrong places and and never confront the people that are smiling and lying to you and laughing up their sleeve at you you know there was an interesting experiment that they did with with uh, it was either gerbils or lab mice or something, but was Carl Rove involved? I think he might have been involved. Mm. <laughs> yeah, um, just bring it, bring it over here. With it. <laughs> yeah, go up that hole. Yeah, oh, that one. No, that one. I kind of like that. <laughs> they basically took. They would take one of these rodents and then sort of rough it up a little bit. Yeah, just for no reason. Mm-hmm. And then when they would introduce another rodent into the cage, that one would then transfer the aggression onto the new rodent. Yeah. So it's just, it just the idea of just like you said, like kicking the cat for no reason. So you say that you're, the bottom line of this is the equation is that man is a rat or a gerbil. We're a gerbil in a cage being, just poked, about, around by, being poked around by life. But I, we're at the end of our time and this is this has been wonderful. I didn't do any voices. No, I didn't. I Wait, I'll, uh, Futurama's coming back. By the way, you're, the se- this season of Futurama has been fucking incredible. Yeah. Like the writing on the, you guys are, I'm friends with DiMaggio and Phil Lamar. And oh, those, guys those are and, my best, best friends. And, and, um, and and the, the, the writing I mean the show is always good yes but the but the level of joke writing on the show you know since the move to Comedy Central has been incredible I loved the Apple episode was so fucking amazing I know and that you know and then the general cons- uh, the Cognacetti post on the internet you know it was the worst thing I've ever seen they they screamed and cried like like you know uh like infants, you know, for the show to come back. Why did they kill it? You know, and then when it comes back, why is it back? I, I, th- I think the show... I think people are into this costume. They put on this costume of the guy who takes, you know, perfectly good piece of swordfish to take... 
Ew. You know, and you know what it is? It's it's those it's those people are gerbils. Uh-oh. They have shitty yeah. lives. They yeah. they take it out on you, and you know, yeah. like they take it so out people, on the internet. Lot, they take it out on the faceless internet. A lot of people think that being you know a curmudgeon is a sign of having character, and I think that's why people always shit on things. Is because it's like if you're the easygoing nice guy, people think you're kind of a. Fool. I know, but isn't it kind of all for nothing? I mean, because there's no Hall of Fame for posters. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no Emmy for the best poster or the more sarcastic or the one who's the nastiest. There's no. This guy gets it. There's Not no awards. I smell a posties. No, posties. no, you smell a ceremony that can be held online with real awards. Yeah, <laughs> but I, but I, the but most I, recalcitrant goes to you know <laughs> Timmy Reagan in Attleboro, Massachusetts. Uh, yeah, an award for total ponage goes to <laughs> Titty oh, Fucker '97. The LOL award. <laughs> the ponies. Yeah, but there is Futurama um, has a Christmas episode, Xmas, I should say. Okay. On Sunday night, this Sunday night. Is it this Sunday? I don't know if we'll be up by this Sunday. Shit. Uh, well, watch it after you hear about this, because they pl- they'll play it on Comedy Central. Yes, they will, and 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 people should watch. It's a great show, and, and, and all your favorites are there. Fry, 25-year-old pizza delivery boy. Man, all this constant exposure to radiation is making me thirsty. <laughs> Young lady, bring me a sandwich from the I dumpster. I didn't realize that was you. And leave the maggots on it. <laughs> Can I tell you how, how excited I get every time he comes on screen? Because I just want him to talk. I just love Zoyberg. All your favorites, favorites are back, kids. So yeah. Good news, everyone. <laughs> Bad news. <laughs> and uh, zap, you know, uh, master of time, space, and everything else in between. And uh, oh yeah, winner of this year's modesty award. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to work with. I don't. I don't know if you remember this, but um, I I did a show called Barnyard at Nickelodeon, and you came in and did a voice on Barnyard. Yes. Uh, I play the talking cow on Barnyard, and you played uh, the do- the doctor who uh, you you diagnose one of the the ferret on the show as having. You have crazy brain! Like, oh, really? Yes. Well, it was like some screaming... It um, was a screaming German! Teutonic-flavored uh, voice. Yeah, and he had, a, he had, this, he had this, this, this CD that you could buy to listen to, to calm people, and he was like, just listen to the CD, and the CD was just him going, pita-pata, pita-pata. I now I remember it. I remember it exactly. I don't have a copy of it. I wish I did, though. I would get you a copy of that. Right. Circle oh. gets the square. <laughs> like the way you play the game. <laughs> but, uh, but this is a tremendous honor to meet you. Oh, wait, you. since you geeked out over Ren and Stimpy, I gotta do that. Oh, yes. oh okay. Yes. Hey, Ren, will you button me? <laughs> you shut up, you fool! Yes, I shall kill you! Yeah, you took over Ren, too. Yes, well, I was supposed to do it originally. Uh, my audition tape, my original, um, I was supposed to do both characters. And then once we sold the show, because the both my audition tape sold that show. John brought it to Nickelodeon. And I had auditioned in the closet up from Kurt Loder's office, you know, with a broomstick. <laughs> yep. Real Hollywood romance kind of romantic <laughs> Hollywood story. <clears throat> with a bucket, we were in the closet, like, and I'm reading from a piece of paper, I'm reading both voices. And he went in and sold it, and he says, what you did just sold the show. But um, he, I think he really wanted to do that role. And, mm-hmm. he, you know, of course, he, he was the one who gave me a tape of what it should sound like. Mm-hmm. And uh, what all the beats were and character shifts, you know, sometimes he was Slavic, sometimes he was South of the Border. You know, other times he was Peter Lorre, sometimes he's Kirk Douglas, sometimes he's Burl Ives. You know, I mean, this was all laid out. I mean, they weren't my choices, but he right. gave me this tape and said, this is what I want, this is what I want. 
and he gave me a million little cuts from these great movies, you know, like uh, you know that quiet hideousness of Peter Laurie before, not the explosive one where his eyes are popping right. out of his head. It's the other one. I'd like a couple of hamburgers, please, <laughs> and make them raw. <laughs> Those are my favorite characters. That's kind of the uh, this uh, from Space Madness, the this ice cream bar. Yes, yes, but th- there's something real attractive and creepy about that stuff because it's like Martin the Martian, Marvin the Martian. Right. He said, you know, you always wanted to know why he wanted to uh, blow up the Earth because it obscures my view of Venus. <laughs> was that in was that in the Duck Dodgers in the twenty fourth and a half century? Was that, was that was he was that? always in those cartoons, Marvin the Martian. I loved uh, yeah. I, I, I'm oh. going to blow up the earth. One of my favorite one of my favorite jokes in one of those was 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 Bugs, but he because uh, Marvin the Martian had that green Martian dog right. sidekick, and uh, and Bugs Bunny. Like they tackle each other, and then they're all of a sudden they're in this embrace. Yes. And he starts to pull away, and Bugs Bunny goes, "No, no, they're on Mars." And he goes, "No, no, no, don't go. There's a beautiful Earth out tonight." And there's just oh, an Earth yes. in the background. It's like one of my favorite fucking well, that, jokes. That stuff helped shape your nuttiness. I mean, that was that was where you incubated, you know, with all this kind of I don't know removal of reality. And, and people twisting your mm-hmm. perceptions of things even though you were young you just thought oh if I hit my hand it will hurt that's how you learn your first lesson in objective and subjective reasoning you know you don't have to smash that with your hand uh, to know it'll hurt but you have you have to do it to know how much it'll hurt right <laughs> and then when all those things are taken away there's this beautiful freedom and this rush that comes over a kid and I know why cartoons uh, were so great. You know, they basically took it out of cartoons for a couple few decades. The stuff that would make a kid awash with like uh, this glow and this this spark of madness inside. Not real madness, but just like breaking out of yourself. Well, yeah, because I think they realized like well, we can make cheap cartoons. It's it's just it's enough if we just distract kids. We don't have to inspire them in any way. Yeah, but you know what they did to distract from the cheapness of the cartoons? They hired whole committees and focus groups, and then it got to the point where Action for Children's Television—it was a woman named run by Peggy Charon—that uh, put out these edicts about cartoons. Somehow she became, you know, the arbiter of what was going to be good, and, that, and you couldn't have a character with a clenched fist in a cartoon, even if they were running down the street. No more clenched fists. It had to be open. If you blew up a building, you had to reintegrate it before the end of the cartoon, and it has to be because everybody worked together. You know, we did an episode of Barnyard where the barnyard, where the barn blows up, and they made us go in in, in ADR, like in post, uh, and and add in all of us going, "We're okay." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but at least they didn't up. show have to show the kids and jab them in the ribs so hard that it breaks you in half. Like you know, now you understand. Right now, do you get this morality play? I thought it was a cartoon. No, it's a morality play, you young idiot. <laughs> You're stupid. You're yeah. stupid. Yeah, what are you stupid? I think one of my favorite. I think the quintessential Stimpy line for me is was so simple. But it, but for some reason, it just resonates in my head when they're they're eating garbage and Ren's like, "Wait a minute, what are you having?" And, and Stimpy goes, "I'm having a sock." Like that's just that that Stimpy line is the most is the most quintessential Stimpy line. Oh, I know, but the the response was even funnier. I think it's like, "You let me have the can." <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you're you one said. of the good ones, man. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, that was a Jackie Gleason line. Because part of Ren, he was a quintessential a-hole. Right. Who, who had the, 
the Jackie Gleason stuff in mm-hmm. him and the, you know, uh, that, that, you know, sort of negative qualities, but Jackie Gleason was still lovable and that, you know, he, he, the reason he was so funny, let me just say this about comedy while, while you wrap up, is the guys that were the funniest in life to me were the ones that could make you cry because now you had an emotional investment in what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Is anybody that could make you cry could rip you up with laughter, could just tear you to shreds with laughter because it meant more. There was way more gravity. Jackie Gleason, the show wasn't funny you know, because of the one-liners so much as it was. Here's a guy that spends almost a half hour stepping in shit mm-hmm. and trying to scrape shit off his shoe. And then when he does something funny, it, it just totally throws the table upside down. And Sid Caesar was like that. Um, one of the first things I ever saw on TV was called A Drunk There Was. And here's this crazy man going into his office, sits down. He's got nothing to do. He's stalling around. He's making three-point shots with his ankle. Yep. And he tries to play a little fake golf. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's twitching. And it's because he needs a drink. And then all of a sudden, it took on a whole other... It was a whole other animal suddenly. And you were compelled. It drew you in. And, and the funniness of how he looked for a drink. Except that he was going through that in real life. Right. And I said, this is sad. Even when I was like five. I said, this man is sad, but he's so funny. And I grew up to have the same exact problems. And, you know, even then I somehow related to this guy and I got to talk about it with him, you know? Wow. And I said, you don't know how, how many people were rooting for you, Sid, when you were lost. You know, and I said, I was one of them. What did he say? Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he didn't say that. He, you could tell he, I did some shit that, that was very reminiscent of him to his face. I got pulled into it by a group called Creative Light. They did the comic book movie. And we're having lunch with my idol. And I just didn't know what to do. You know, you don't, when that happens, you, sometimes you don't know whether to shit or go blind. Right. It's like, what? You know, I'm sorry. God bless you. you know, <laughs> um, and he was there and they said, oh, Sid, you know, Billy does a lot of the stuff that you do. And I was like, oh, no. Don't do that to me. What do you, I wish I was dead. You know, and so they said, do that thing you were doing. And I was like, oh, boy. And I did a scene of an Italian hunter. You know, shooting up everything and talking in gibberish, and the only thing that stops him is a woman, a woman, naked woman walking by and say, "Favolo tutte la eccoli, the most biggest boobs I ever saw in my life." got nice games too, and and he got a little sparkle in his eye. I could see his eye turn into a little twinkle. I think he got a little misty, Aww. and uh, he says, "You know, uh, this is the spawn of my loin." You know, wow. people like Robin and, you know, anybody that's nuts like that, if if they were exposed to Sid Caesar or Jonathan Winters uh, at all in their lives, you know it, it, it exacerbated their trip to this, this you know, grandeur mm-hmm. of being able to pull shit out of nowhere and turn it into something. Well, I would like to, uh, I think this deserves <laughs> this. 
this was an amazing podcast. I mean, we went from we went from religion to music to childhood stuff to the monsters to the pyramid and pussy. Fart noises, Chris. Fart noises. We have fart and, noises. And back to back to Sid Caesar <laughs> and, and Zoidberg. We have a fartophone here. This was. Oh, I'm getting a call. I'm getting a call. Seventy six. <laughs> <laughs> Could you open that door? <laughs> Enjoy your burrito! <laughs> Thank you guys. Thanks. Thanks very much. That was awesome, boy. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.